We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the RotoWire Prospect Podcast. I'm your host, James Anderson, and we will be continuing our preview of the upcoming MLB draft this week. Uh, we're going to be having Carlos Colazzo uh, from Baseball America on. Uh, so really excited about that. Uh, Baseball America, obviously, just uh, as good as it gets when it comes to draft content. And and Carlos is is uh, heavily involved with everything they got going on over there. So, uh, Carlos, uh, how are you doing tonight? And uh, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm doing well. We're getting closer. It feels really like this is kind of the time for us to bear down on, on the draft and get our final rankings out and get our updated reports out. So for me lately, it's been a lot of writing, a lot of calls, um, and really just bearing down on these guys and, and trying to, to make sure we have them in the right order. I feel like I'm, I'm constantly tweaking with our, our lists uh, as we get more feedback and as players continue to, um, to play on the college side. And then we've got a lot of college summer leagues that are starting up. So uh, just busy time and uh, really getting excited to see how this thing is going to play out. So just quickly before we talk about the specific players, what what is the process like for you with uh, the top 300 rankings that you guys have? I mean, how how often are you uh, moving guys around in there? How often are you changing scouting grades on players in there? Uh, what's what's that process like? Yeah, so I would say we've we've become a lot more iterative in how we do the draft rankings since I've started. Um, Initially, it was a preseason list, and then we would update maybe once or twice in season, and then we would have the BA 500. Um, as I've continued to do it, I feel like there is a benefit by making it a more of a, more of an iterative process where we slowly expand to the 500. Because really, every time we roll out an update, I feel like we get a lot of good feedback. Um, not to say that we don't gather feedback before we're doing an update; we we definitely do that. But there's something about the list being out there and people seeing it who maybe we didn't hear from. Uh, before who will see it and give us feedback on up down movement for a player that's very helpful and I think just uh, consistently making tweaks I feel like is always um, beneficial for the accuracy of the list at least um, that's the goal hopefully that's the case I feel like there's so much information that you're getting consistently and if we can act on that um, in as close to live real time as we can while also doing as much quality control uh, as possible I feel like that's the uh, the, the best process for us um, at Baseball America, we're always trying to do our rankings based on the industry. So this isn't a list of the top 300 uh, based on my perspective or my views of players. Um, we always try to have a more of a, more of a reporting uh, foundation in our lists. What are the scouts saying? What do the teams think? How, are, how is the industry lining up the talent? Uh, and I would say for us, a, a successful list would be one that captures the industry consensus uh, as accurately as possible in, in that it exists at all. Um, and a failure would be um, just not capturing that at all. So I think for me, I, I think of myself more as a reporter, although I've, I've certainly learned a few things from talking to scouts as much as we have. But that that's kind of how the process works for us. Just a lot of calls. Um, we have more data to work with uh, than we have previously, which is nice and helps us ask better questions. But uh, yeah, that's kind of an overview of the process. So with uh, with it being kind of a reported list, uh, you have Drew Jones at the very top. Uh, he seems to be a top most list that you'll see out there. Is, you know, on the team side of things, do you get the sense that he is just overwhelmingly the top guy? Um, like sort of 
the vast majority of teams have him at, at the top or mm-hmm. is there maybe more kind of variance from team to team? Yeah, I would say he he is a consensus top player in the sense that m- almost all of the feedback that that we get have has him at the top of the list. I don't think it is to the extent that an Adley Rutschman uh, was like a clear tier above the rest of the players in that class in 2019. Uh, but it's certainly more of a separation than we had a year ago where uh, Jordan Lawler and Marcelo Meyer were the top players that we had. We had Lawler one and Meyer two, um, but it was really a struggle the entire year to feel confident in who we were putting at one. It really seemed like depending on the teams we were talking to, um, you could order those guys in, in different manners, even some other players behind them uh, who you could shuffle around just depending on who you talk to this year. Uh, really consistently, Drew has been the top player. Our preseason list, he was number one. In every update we've had throughout the the spring, he has been number one. When we update to the top 500 uh, very soon here, he's going to be the number one player as well. So I think he's a consensus top player. Uh, I don't think the the gap between him and the next few players on this list is the same as Natalie Rutschman, but um, certainly he he seems like the industry's consensus top guy. How does he compare to past top uh, prep position players from from other classes like is he ahead of Lawler and Meyer, and Meyer mm-hmm. from last year is he kind of on the you know do we have to go back to like I don't know Bob, Bobby Witt Byron Buxton's mm-hmm. a, a name I've heard before in terms of who he kind of compares to do you have any um, sense of just other top prep position players that he might compare to yeah I would say in terms of comparisons um I don't have like a great com- comparison in terms of he's a player similar to this but I think he's uh, maybe he's the best uh, high school hitter since Bobby Witt Jr. I certainly think at the time in 2019, Bobby Witt Jr. was just um, – Drew Jones has really exciting secondary tools. I think Bobby Witt Jr. was one of the more toolsy high school players that we've seen in years. And the fact that he was he had all of that upside and all those really exciting tools, the power and speed while playing shortstop, uh, would probably separate Bobby Witt Jr. from a Drew Jones for me. I think Drew Jones is, is probably similar to a Jordan Lawler, Marcelo Meyer. It's a little harder to say confidently if he's above or below, because I think, again, depending on who you're talking to, you would get different opinions on that. I think you could see some people arguing that because those players are shortstops, uh, maybe that's enough to to have a tie in this area or to have those guys slightly ahead. I could also see a case where you look at Drew Jones and the body and the projection that he has and and really, you look at the actual tool grades, and Drew Jones' tools are a lot louder than those shortstops at the same time uh, while being a premium uh, position player at center field as well. So I could see you arguing it both ways. I think Drew maybe has a little bit more upside um, just because his he, sh- he should add so much strength. He's He's got such a good foundation of hitting now, and I think there's a lot of power that's going to come in the future, but Jordan Lawler looks pretty good right now in the minor leagues. So it's, it's hard to say with any confidence uh, either way. I think you can make a good case um, regardless. Yeah. And I'm looking at your guys' most recent mock draft. And if it played out this way, Jordan Lawler's uh, future org mate would be Drew Jones at two. You have, uh, or BA has uh, Baltimore taking Jackson holiday at one. Uh, do you think it would be, like a mistake getting too cute, that type of thing to, to not go with Drew Jones at one, or um, could you see making an argument for, for another player there if it was a significant savings? Yeah, I, I think personally, I really just like when teams take the best player available and, and don't make too much of a fuss about it. But I think I also just understand that it can be the smart decision to take a player who's going to take significantly less money to sign. If you view the talent uh, difference between them as very minimal, or maybe even in the case of the Baltimore, they think Jackson holiday, like we were talking about with these other shortstops, he's got a really good all around tool set and he's going to stay at shortstop. So that positional difference could make it a little bit more even in their mind. And if it's coming with a lot less money, well, now you can get better players later on in the draft. So I understand that strategically and logically with how the draft works in baseball, that it makes sense personally, uh, as a fan of the draft and a fan of the game, I just want players to line up the, the top guys and and go from there. Um, and, and certainly with the Orioles picking 1-1, I don't know that we're going to have a lot of confidence as we get closer to the draft and the direction they're going. They always keep things wide open. They're not afraid to go off the board uh, when there are better talents available based on on what the industry is saying about those talents. The interesting thing for me is uh, we've seen Baltimore take the best player available like they did in 2019 when they were picking 1-1 for Adley. Um, they've gone off the board uh, in, in recent drafts, but they also have always been picking from the college hitting demographic. Drew is the top player in the class, but he's a high school player. Is that 
is that a demographic that maybe they would be just less inclined to take as the top player in the class? I'm not sure. Uh, I think he's a guy who could move pretty quickly. And I think these elite high school players do move faster um, than most high school players. That would make sense. They're a lot more polished. I, I don't think Drew has a lot of rawness in his game. It's really just he's going to add a lot of physicality and size that's going to improve his his tool set and his power. But um, hopefully we get some clarity on, on where Baltimore's <laughs> heading. I'm really looking forward to when they're picking further down in the draft. And yeah. We don't have to have them to uh, to dance around up top. Yeah, I was I was just thinking that like I can't wait till we uh, maybe get a, a couple years down the road here and Baltimore doesn't hold all the cards. Uh, but I, I I think you're right. Like I think um, if they had a if there was sort of a, a college player that compared similarly to Drew Jones, mm-hmm. I think that would probably be the the guy that would be getting mocked to them. But it does seem um, like there's the prep players seem to have more upside. Uh, in this specific class but I, I something you mentioned I wanted to ask you about um, center field versus shortstop do mm-hmm. big league teams like is there a, a consensus in terms of big league teams if it's a shortstop or a center fielder everything's equal are they going to go with the shortstop or is it kind of split because I know back in the day shortstop used to be kind of the the spot mm-hmm. I think analytics defensively have kind of shown just how valuable an elite a center field defender can be mm-hmm. but is there is there any sort of consensus on the team side i don't know that there is a consensus it, it feels like to me that based on some of the center fielders that you've seen playing that position for big league teams who are, are really competitive and winning uh world series that that maybe the center field value has gone down i mean you've got guys like adam duvall who are playing center field for the braves when they won the world series that's that's not a typical center field profile and if you can have those guys play that position and still succeed uh, maybe that's a point to the shortstops I think it would probably vary depending on the team I talked to a lot of scouts who who just think the value of just being on the infield in general even if you're not playing shortstop being at third base being at second base pretty much all the infield positions outside of first base I know a lot of teams really put a lot of value on that certainly center field is the most valuable defensive position in the outfield and I think it really does seem to vary more depending on who you talk to of just how valuable that is. Is is center field the next most premium position after shortstop? Would you rather have a third baseman or a catcher in between those two positions? I think it depends who you talk to. Um, with shifting, I, I guess I would have expected that, that maybe you do get more towards a center field shortstop. Uh, they're kind of equal in value just because there's so many fly balls that you're going to have to have a guy who can cover a lot of ground and maybe with defensive positioning and just better understanding what these hitters are doing. Um, you can get more body types that can play shortstop. So a lot of it has changed. I think just based on the conversations that I have, shortstop is certainly the the premium position. And, and for the prospects on the amateur side, um, most of the top players at the high school level, especially are playing shortstop. So you're just going to get your best athletes and your best talents at that position. Um, and you've got a lot of flexibility for those guys to move to other positions down the line. So I think maybe that even that even might be the most important point when we're talking about draft prospects, because if you're already in the outfield in high school, there's probably a reason for that. I think Drew Jones might be an outlier in that case, actually, because he is a very good defensive shortstop. I'd be really interested to see if a team would work him out there or at least try him there at pro ball. But he's so good in center field that maybe you don't do it. But for a lot of these infielders who are athletic and handsy, if they can't play shortstop, well, maybe you just move them to a third base or a second base or a center field. That happens all the time, uh, and it's quite rare to happen the opposite way. So I think from a draft perspective, shortstop is still kind of king in terms of positional value. Yeah, that all makes sense. And the, the guy that you guys have second on your top 300 right now is a shortstop, Brooks Lee, although maybe he doesn't stick at shortstop. Uh, where do you think Lee ends up defensively? And then what kind of offensive producer do you envision him being in his prime? Yeah, I think he's he's definitely a, a good candidate to move off the position. Most of the people we talk to just think he's a little short in the range department. Uh, the hands are good. Uh, the arm sounds good. So I think third is probably the best fit for him. Maybe there's a, a situation where he plays second base, but I guess typically you want those more rangy players uh, playing up the middle. And as he gets bigger, I could see the range even getting a little bit lighter for him. Um, but there's nothing wrong with the hands from anything I've heard. If, if he's getting to a ball, he's going to make the play. Uh, I think the reactions and the instincts are good for him overall. But in terms of an offensive player, I mean, maybe he, he, he might be the best pure hitter in this class. I think there are three players that I would point to as as having a real case for that. It would be Brooks Lee, Kevin Prada, the catcher at Georgia Tech, and then Tamar Johnson, who is maybe one of the more famous high school hitters that we've had in years. 
Um, but Lee just has a fantastic swing, a great understanding of what he's doing at the plate. Doesn't swing and miss a ton. He walks a lot more than he strikes out. Um, really the only knock you could say for him is that he's not doing it in the biggest conference. You could point to a guy like Kevin Prada who's doing it in the ACC uh, and doing it with more power. But I do think Brooks has uh, just a very safe bat who you can feel good about hitting for average at the next level. Um, he's got a lot of doubles uh, the last two years that I could see turning into home runs. Even in pro ball, I think he drives the ball with with pretty good impact and has pretty good pop. Um, so I do think the power is going to play for him as well. I would I would think he'd be a, a really great player to put at the top of your lineup, hit for a high average, have a high OBP, um, and maybe average or above average power as well. So it's a pretty complete hitter. Um, and my biggest question would just be how much impact are we going to be looking at down the line? Is it solid average power? Is it above average power? Or is he one of those really unique hitters who just has such good barrel accuracy that he's going to get even more than that? Yeah, that's that's all really interesting. I mean, I, I was watching some of the videos I was watching of him um, from his home runs this year. I think he hit, uh, what, 15 homers um, this year, like some of the some of the parks he was hitting those in looked uh, pretty, pretty cozy. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, that's why you see I, a lot of people look at those doubles totals that he has. He had um, 27 in 2021 and then 25 this year. Uh, you're right. 15 homers. That's up from 10 last year. So I do think, and like you mentioned, the parks that he, he's playing in, we've heard that feedback from scouts as well, that because they are so spacious, like they're expecting a lot of those doubles to just naturally turn into home runs. So, I think there's still some upside to be had with him. So I wanted to just compare Brooks Lee and Tamar Johnson, even though, you know, different, I mean, uh, high school for Tamar, uh, Brooks Lee come from college, but you have a 70 grade hit tool uh, on both guys, Brooks Lee and Tamar Johnson. And I just wanted to ask you whose bat uh, and hit tool specifically you're most confident in out of Lee and out of Johnson going forward. Yeah, me personally, I'm very high in Tamar's hit tool. I, I've said this a lot as we've gotten closer to the draft, but it's the most special, most advanced, most polished high school hitter that I've ever seen. Um, it's better than guys like Riley Green, Jared Kelenic, uh, Corbin Carroll at the same age. His combination of uh, just pitch recognition, zone control, bat-to-ball skills, bat speed, power, it's just it's unlike anything that I've personally seen. I think his ability to just flick the barrel um, and, and hit a single the other way. And then an, the next at bat, he could catch 95 um, up and in and turn on it for a home run with plus power hit just the ability to do all of that at his age and his track record of hitting um, as a high school player with USA baseball on the showcase circuit. It's just really impressive to me. Brooks Lee is very impressive and you can make the case that maybe he's less risky because he's done it in college. I think at the same time in high school, he was regarded as a very good pure hitter as well. Um, but not to the same uh, level that Tamar is right now um, in high school. And I think because of that, just because of comparing them at the same age where they were uh, and just how we talk about Tamar as a hitter, like people are constantly trying to find who is the best pure hitter. Tamar is the best pure hitter since who? And I've had conversations where it goes back quite a few years. Um, and just because of that, I think I think I would have more confidence in Tamar. Um, but I'm also, I'll admit to being more excited about the high school players in general, um, just because I feel like you get so much more upside with that demographic, especially at the top of the draft. So for me, it's Tamar. I think there are a lot of people who would say um, Brooks, maybe because of that college performance, but it's they're both two really special bats. So I'm just fascinated to see where Tamar goes on draft day, because we're talking about a guy that you're talking to scouts and we have to go back like over a decade to find a prep hit tool that's this good but then he's also this five, eight second baseman. So what do you think his range is on draft day? Because I feel like there might be some teams that look at it and see the pros and some teams that look at it and see the the limitations. Um, so what do you, what do you think his range is? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it sounds like his range is a, a bit wider than the other high school players who are around him at this point. And I do think that from Tamar's um, point of view or, or, or just talking about Tamar, it, it's not beneficial for him that, his high point in this draft cycle was last summer. Um, this spring, he's playing with a high school team that really doesn't face greatest competition ever. He gets pitched around a lot. So when you have the those big high-end decision makers coming in, general managers, um, just people who are, are running in to see a guy who you might take with your first pick, and he's playing in that competition, and you're getting one at bat, maybe you don't get a ton of swings. Uh, I, I think it's very easy in the industry to 
um, maybe not forget, but but the performances that made him this prospect right now happened so long ago. And with guys like Elijah Green or with Jackson Holiday or with Drew Jones, they've played better competition in some cases, or their their performance has just been so outstanding. Like in the case of Jackson Holiday, the tools really jumped across the board and he was one of the best high school players in the country just in terms of like production statistics. Um, so he had a lot of buzz. Elijah Green played against really good competition and in Florida with IMG Academy uh, and did well. Drew Jones produced really well in Georgia. And it's not to say Termar didn't produce, but when you're you're looking at a guy whose profile is so dependent on on his bat, you want to feel really confident um, in seeing those ABs and seeing him actually perform because their performance for him is going to be more important than those other guys who have these secondary tools and, and maybe more premium positions that they're going to play. Um, so I could easily see a case where the industry um, is maybe a little, just a, a bit more scared. Tamar is a unique profile and he is super bat dependent. So if, if you are risk averse, um, I think you can make the case both ways. It's interesting because for me, the bat is the most important. So Tamar's the best hitter. So just take him. You feel good about it. But also if he doesn't hit, if you miss on that hit tool projection, if he's not really a 70 hitter, uh, you don't have as much to fall back on as those other guys. So I think the range is probably wider. It's certainly wider than what it seems like Drew Jones and Jackson Holiday is right now. Um, and in the same way we were talking about GMs coming in to watch players, Elijah Green is much more of a, a typical top of the class prospect that those guys want to take the physicality um, matches big league hitters right now his power and speed is very apparent every time you go see him um so i think there there are a lot of reasons that termar might slide behind those guys and i also think too um i'm personally just very high in the bat and so i'm in on him and i'm not the one making the pick um so none of the risk really matters for me but it certainly does for these teams but that's kind of how I view it now. That's probably a long-winded answer for you, but no, yeah, I mean it. It's just really fascinating to me because I, I could see, like I could see teams passing on him, even though they've got him internally graded as like the best hitter in the class, and it's just like it's such a weird profile. It might be hard to pull the trigger, um, when you're on the clock like that. But yeah, um, Jackson Holiday, who you mentioned. It just seems like he's been evolving uh, maybe more so than these other top prep guys we're talking about over the past uh, year or so. Uh, in your guys' write-up on him, you, you mentioned that he's grown a few inches. Uh, there's room still for him to keep growing in terms of adding strength. Uh, the approach seems to have improved um, based on, on what you guys uh, wrote about him. So like where where is this sort of headed with Jackson Holiday? Where do you think these tools kind of settle for him in in 4 or 5 years? How big does he get? Is he going to still be a plus runner in his early to mid 20s? Like how do you see Jackson Holiday's uh skill set evolving? Yeah, he he's been maybe the the biggest riser of these top prospects. All of the the Drew Jones, Tamar Johnson, Elijah Green trio of players were solidly at the top of the first round entering the year. Jackson Holiday was a guy who I had conversations with scouts all last summer, and it was basically consistently them saying, look, if this guy, look at the body, look how much room he has to fill out. He's like a baby-faced kid. He, he's going to blow up once he gets a little bit stronger and starts to develop physically, and that's that's exactly what happened over the offseason. He came out bigger and stronger. The tools jumped up from that. Uh, he, he started hitting for more power more naturally. I think last summer he was starting to add that strength. Um, and knew he could hit for power. And so he was trying to hit for power and got out of the more natural hitting ability that he had shown as an underclassman. Um, this spring, it's come a lot more naturally. He's used the opposite field like he typically does. Um, there's been less swing and miss. Obviously, the competition that he's playing against in Oklahoma is different from the, the showcase circuit. Um, but scouts have kind of unanimously talked about the improvements that he's made with his swing on top of just those tools, just being a little bit more explosive. We now have him with above average tools or better pretty much across the board. Um, I do think he's probably going to be a guy who, who turns in plus run times early in his career. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how his body develops as he progresses because his dad was more of a power hitter at the same age. Um, he is not that guy yet, but I could easily see him kind of continuously adding strength and becoming more of that power bat as he reaches maybe physical maturity, uh, his, his physical prime. Um, it wouldn't shock me if he became more of a, an above average runner than a real plus burner. 
um, once he got to the, that mid twenties, late twenties range. Um, but I do think all the tools are, are pretty exciting. Um, I think he's got a chance to impact the game in a lot of ways. And of these people, of these players up in the top 10, he, he certainly has the best chance to stick at shortstop as well. So that's certainly a factor. Yeah. He's got such a, such a pretty swing, uh, especially when he's, uh, trying to take it the other way. Um, that really stood out to me. I, yeah, I could see why you guys have him as the you guys have him in the mock draft going to to Baltimore one right now. Um, Elijah Green, who you also mentioned, uh, he's if you're looking at the the top three hundred, he's the first player on there that has a technically has a down arrow next to him. Uh, but it sounds like you were saying like scouts have not really seen anything um, this spring to necessarily be more down on him. Is that just a case of Jackson Holiday passing him? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's two spots, I think, from the last uh, position that he was in. I think, honestly, with our arrows, I wish we could turn them on or off, just depending on the <laughs> swings, because there are a lot of players who are going to have arrows, and it's it's literally just because another player has moved right. above them. Like, we we didn't move um, certain players, and it's just movement around them that will cause those arrows to pop up. And I think on a list with 300 players as well, it, it needs to be more than a, a couple spots for it to be a real significant up or down move, I would say. But he's solidly in that top tier. I think, um, depending on the teams you talk to, he could be viewed as as the number two player on the board. He certainly has the most pure upside in the class if all these players are getting their 100th percentile outcomes. I mean, he he would wind up being the best player. Um, but yeah, he, he's had a really strong spring, good track record of hitting as an underclassman. Uh, and for me, the most accessible in-game power from a high school hitter that I've seen uh, in a while, he just constantly impacted the baseball. Do you know what his his makeup is like? Because I mean, he's he's been famous in this class um, for a long time, even with as many of the the guys who whose whose dads played in the big leagues. Elijah Green's a guy that you know most people that follow prospects have heard about um, for a couple of years now. So I'm just wondering, like how how he's handled sort of being that famous and drawing that much attention at such a young age. Yeah. Well, based on the performance, he's handled it fine. Uh, I haven't heard anything uh, that would concern me about his makeup. He sounds like a really hardworking kid who who goes out there and gets after it. I mean, most of those players at IMG are, are living and breathing baseball every day, more so than a lot of players in the country. I don't have too much insight specifically into the makeup, um, but I think for all these guys, especially the, the Bloodlines players, they just they've been around the game um, at such a high level. And, and even if it's not baseball, just being around um, people who played professional sports, I think that just, it gives you an advantage in the sense that you know what it takes, you know what you need to do every day. And all of these kids, the work they put in is just crazy um, to, to see and to watch. And, and there's a reason why they're so polished. Like none of the guys that we're talking about right now, I would describe as like raw in any sense. And, and that's why they're at the top of the list, of course. Um, but yeah, it's been really cool to see a class with, with so many bloodlines players. We, we talked about Drew Jones, Jackson holiday, Elijah Green, really every single player that we talked about Brooks Lee's father is his coach at Cal Poly and his coach there for 20 years. Um, and there's something cool about that. I mean, every year we'll have a draft class that has some players who have notable bloodlines, but the amount and the quality of the players in this year's class who, who are bloodlines prospects is, is pretty special. You mentioned Kevin Pareda earlier as well. Uh, what's what's your gut call on sort of how his um, defensive evolution sort of goes? Like, is is this a thing where, um, like, two years from now he's still getting developed at catcher and it's sort of slowing his ascent to the majors? Do you see them maybe, or whatever team takes him, maybe just kind of fast tracking the bat? Like, how do you see this all playing out with Pareda? Yeah, I think that I would imagine whoever's taking him up high is is really incentivized to keep him at the position. So I would imagine, um, unless the bat was just screaming to be put in the big leagues and, and the team was competitive soon, which again, all these teams who are picking in the range uh, that, that they're going to have access to Prada, they're, they're not really competitive right now. Um, so I think all of those all of those factors would align towards me thinking that he's going to stick at the position. I know there's been some split feedback in the industry about whether or not he's a catcher at the next level. A lot of the the area scouts who I've talked to really believe in his ability to stick behind the plate. He's made a lot of progress this spring. And I think one of the biggest differences in amateur baseball and professional baseball, and one of the areas where you consistently see improvement with, with players is on the defensive side. And I think particularly with catching, you just don't get the sort of professional catching development 
um, outside of professional baseball. There's just a lot of, of work that you have to do. And I think you take a guy like Kevin Prada, who does have an exceptional work ethic, and you get him out of a very rigorous uh, four-year university, and you don't have to worry about classes on top of baseball, on top of your social life, when you're just focused on getting better at baseball. I think he has all the physical tools to stick at the position um, with that work. He's bulked up. He's got stronger. I think he's proven that he can be more durable this year. Um, and for me, there are no glaring reasons why he couldn't catch. And I think whoever's taking him um, is going to put put the resources together and put the time in to, to make the most of him defensively. Uh, there have been a few catchers in recent years who I think we we had at the time that they were not going to have a chance to catch. Ryan Jeffers is maybe the most notable one who the Twins drafted in the second round a few years ago. All the feedback that I had on Ryan Jeffers at the time he was drafted was that he was not going to catch. A few years later, he was one of the better receivers in baseball. So I think things can change pretty quickly, and, and development as a defensive player um, is pretty consistent in the pro ranks. So I think I'm positive on it. Um, but there are certainly some who think he's going to have to move off the position. It wouldn't be me, but I'm also not a scout. So, is it the the arm seems to be the the thing, right? Like, because if we if we go to robo umps, mm-hmm. um, you know, is is his arm going to be good enough? I guess, like, is that something that you've I would, seen guys improve? Yeah, certainly. The I think he can improve the arm strength, and I think also that's it's probably a sliding scale on is your arm good enough. If you're a good enough hitter, you can you can deal with a catcher whose arm is maybe not the greatest. There are some catchers in the big leagues right now who are are not known for for throwing guys out. They probably bring a lot to the table uh, in terms of uh, receiving, which, like you mentioned, robo-umps, that wouldn't be the case. But if you're a, a, just a fantastic offensive player who can stick the, behind the plate, manage a pitching staff, block the ball, um, then certainly I think there, there's still a realm where even if it's a below-average arm at the major league level for catcher, if, if everything else is really positive, uh, teams will still live with that, but I am excited for when we do move to a post robo ump world because we should be getting a lot more exciting hitters at the position. But uh, yeah, he wouldn't be the, the the guy that you draw up as like a perfect fit for the robo ump world. I would I wouldn't think just because there are players who have uh, better arms in the class, but everything else he does, I, I think he can just be fine defensively, and that would be enough. So I thought it was interesting that you in on the top 300, you have uh, Parada at six and then Jacob Berry from LSU at seven and Jace Young uh, from Texas Tech at eight. And the scouting reports uh, sort of for all three uh, paint the picture of, of bat first college players. Uh, they're all they're all pretty physically mature. And there's some questions about sort of what they bring to the table defensively. Uh, but sort of how how would you kind of compare Parada, Barry, and Young just offensively? Um, is are they all like kind of in the same tier to you? Because just from like the scouting grades, it's it's mostly you know plus hit plus power. Uh, with those two, you have a sixty five hit on on Parada, but kind of how close are those three uh, just from what they bring to the table offensively? Yeah, just from an offensive perspective, I do think they're really similar. I think we have the same hit and power grades on on Barry and Jace Young, um, and, and like you mentioned, a lot of the a lot of the college hitters, even beyond these three, are very much offense first, corner profile types. Um, that's certainly the case now with Jacob Barry and Jace Young. Uh, Parada, you can still hope that he sticks at catcher, um, but with Jace Young and Jacob Barry, most likely first base for both of them. Jace might be able to stick at second base early in his career, but the range isn't great. He's not the best athlete. Um, but for all three of these guys, what's impressive to me and even entering the year, what stood out to me with this college hitting class. And these three were very much um, part of the reason for that is just the track record of hitting for average um, for on base percentage and for power. None of these three that we're talking about here are, are guys that are selling out for their power. They're not guys who don't have really impressive pure hitting ability. I mean, Jace Young was walking at such a high rate this year. People are pitching around him and he was just fine to take those walks I imagine a lot of draft models will really like that. The swing looks a little bit weird for Jace Young, maybe maybe a little more odd and and less uh, orthodox than Jacob Berry and Kevin Parada, but it's worked for him, and it's hard to argue with the production that all of these guys have managed in, in Power 5 conferences. Um, so, so for me, I just have a lot of confidence in the hit, power, OBP combos for all of them. Um, certainly with the positional profile that you're getting you maybe are, are giving up some upside that you could get with the high school players but you're also taking on less risk in what they're going to give you as, as offensive contributors so i think um 
for this hitting class, I really like a lot of what these guys have done. It's it's been maybe the more impressive top tier of depth for college hitters in in a few years. Would it be completely shocking to you if the Orioles went with Jacob Berry at one on a way under slot deal? Because he he kind of seems like an Orioles type of mm-hmm. guy coming from the SEC. Yeah, see, just based on what you just said, I don't think it would. They've done it so much. They did it with Heston Kerstad. They did it to some extent to Colton Cowser. They're different players. Um, but yeah, the, the Orioles like college hitters with, with hitting ability and power. And Jacob Berry does that from both sides of the plate. Um, so it wouldn't shock me. I mean, his name has already been mentioned with them to number one. Uh, I wouldn't love the pick just seeing the guys that you're passing on at that spot, but they're a team that's done that and it's paid off for them. I think guys like Kobe Mayo, they've gotten by maneuvering some money around and that one is looking pretty good. So no, it wouldn't shock me at all. Um, it's definitely something that, that they've proven that they were, are willing to do. They're not afraid to, um, take whatever heat they would get for passing on a player like Drew Jones or Jackson holiday or some of these high school guys. Uh, they're not going to be faced by that. And I think, like you were saying, the hit power combo for him makes a lot of sense with the Orioles. Yeah. I remember uh, thinking it was silly that the Orioles uh, passed on Austin Martin uh, in that draft. And now, oh, I probably thought the same thing. I loved Austin Martin. <laughs> now, now Kobe Mayo is probably a better prospect than Austin Martin. And that wasn't even the guy they took in the first round. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. We're going to talk more about the, the college class here, but first a message from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. All right, I want to slide down a little bit uh, on the the BA board here uh, to the player you guys have at 21, Drew Gilbert uh, with Tennessee, who I think uh, just a couple of days ago might have gotten tossed from like a super regional game. Oh yeah, um, that was a fun look. <laughs> that, that was, uh, yeah, the whole the whole Tennessee team was was up in arms about that. Um, but I I think he's interesting because. Uh, he's this five, nine, uh, center fielder who seems to maybe have like all the, the relevant tools that we kind of care about, at least like for fantasy, like he, he hits, he yeah. uh, can run a little, he's got power, uh, but he is undersized. I, I feel like sometimes those players get sort of underrated by scouts, mm-hmm. um, cause they don't necessarily look, look the part. Um, but, I you guys had an interesting kind of blurb uh, at the end of his thing where it says uh, 
for teams who think his power and exit velocity numbers are more a product of aluminum bats and a good hitting environment in Knoxville, he could be viewed as more of a second round pick, but his contact ability, performance, and well-rounded tool set certainly has others interested in him in the second half of the first round. Uh, what, what side of that do you kind of come down on with, with Drew Gilbert? Uh, I think I'll probably on, on the latter side, this, this, the more positive side, we have him 21. So it's quite a big bump from, from our previous update. And the reason I'm probably on the latter is I had talked to some scouts earlier in the year who were very positive on Drew Gilbert. And they had said at the time that they really liked him. Other people were out on him just because like you said, he doesn't look the part. He's kind of a physically maxed out frame right now. The tools don't jump out at you, but if you look up uh, at what he's doing, he kind of does everything on the field really well. Um, and then as the season has gone on and he's performed like he has, I think everyone has just uh, the, the size, what, what you see when you look at him, that, that fades away when you, look at the production and the performance. I mean, he was the best performing player on the best team in college baseball this year. And it's one of the better college baseball teams we've seen in several years um, from, from my perspective. So for me, I think it just depends on the power. The power is the big, everything else I feel pretty confident in. I mean, he controls his own well. Uh, he makes a lot of contact. He doesn't strike out a ton. He's a good runner. He's a solid athlete, good defender in center field. He has a really strong arm. So even if he's not playing center field, which I know for fantasy probably doesn't matter too much, um, he could play all those other positions just fine. Um, the power is the biggest question because the home run environment in college baseball has been a little funky the last two years. Home runs are up. He does play in a, in a positive park. But I think what what makes me confident that he's going to continue hitting for, for some amount of power at the next level are those exit velocity numbers. I mean, it's aluminum bat now, but we're comparing – college baseball players who are all using aluminum bats and the exit velocity numbers are still impressive. Um, so I'm confident. I think there have been enough smaller hitters who have just exceeded expectations that it's becoming more common for those guys to be taken in higher spots. And there are a lot of short hitters in this year's class, like a Termar Johnson, like a Jet Williams, who maybe we'll talk about later, who who are short, but but have pop and have strength and have bat speed. So I'm probably on the more favorable side. Um, certainly there might be others. Uh, who, who are a little more skeptical, but I would say positive for me. Okay. So outside of the guys that we've kind of already covered, uh, who are uh, a couple hitters that you just really believe in the bat going yeah. forward when they, when they get into pro ball? There are two who I'll point out. Um, one is Jet Williams, who I just mentioned. Uh, he is a five foot seven, 160 pound. That's what he's listed at. I'm assuming he's a lot heavier than that now. He had a lot of good strength over the offseason um, and has a really strong lower half at this point. His hands last summer run, reminded me of Alec Thomas at the same age. And I think they're similar in that they're shorter players, but they have plenty of strength now. Um, and he just catches up to velocity so easily. He turned around 95 a couple times at the area code games. Um, and I was like, wow, these, these hands are just special. The swing itself, I feel like it is great mechanically. The barrel stays in the zone a long time. And I feel like he just picks up the ball very early and then recognizes spin. Like all of the traits of a good hitter that I would want to see. Um, I feel like he possesses those. And he's had a really strong spring. He's continued to move up boards. I think he's another player who did start a little bit lower down because uh, partially because of the size people were wondering, is he a max out guy? What kind of upside are we looking at? But he just continued to hit, continued to perform um, and has more pop than you would expect. So he's moved up boards. I think he's probably going to go in the middle of the first round at this point. And then another player uh, who I really believe in the bat is Cam Collier. And he's a guy who's getting a ton of helium lately. Um, one of the youngest players in the draft, probably going to be the youngest hitter um, on the BA 500 at the end of the day. He reclassified from 2023 and last summer played on the circuit a year younger than a lot of these players and then um, didn't play his senior year in high school and instead went to Chipola Junior College, which is one of the better JUCOs in the country and, and performed really well there. Now he's in the Cape Cod League and facing some of the best pitchers in college. So he just really challenged himself as a hitter by moving so aggressively at a young age. And he's not only acquitted himself well, but he's, he's really impressed and probably exceeded expectations for him because it's really hard to do everything that he's done um, and just be an average hitter. And he's been a very good one, but his swing is just very natural. It's very handsy. Um, and I think he's a guy who's, who's more hit over power now, but he's got a lot of strength in his frame. And if he wants to hit for more power or as he gets more physically mature, I think that power is just going to come. 
Um, so those two are really, really by the bats. Um, and I think they're going to go in a pretty good spot in the draft. So Collier might've been an answer to this next question, but are there any other hitters uh, who are maybe in the top 50 or mm-hmm. kind of moving towards the top 50 that you could maybe see being uh, moved up in there on the next update who scouts have really been buzzing about of late? Um, there are a lot of college hitters who, who I could see moving up. Jacob Melton, we've already moved him up a, a little bit. He's at the back of the first round now uh, with Oregon State. He's been a really good performer, center field profile, left-handed hitter with a bit of a weird swing, but it's still worked for him. Um, another hitter that I think we have in the top 50 or just after is Kate Doty. And that, that would be one that I'm personally very high on. He is uh, an infielder with Louisiana state. Um, and it's just another guy. The tools don't really jump off the page. He's a smaller hitter. Um, but I feel like he's got great zone awareness, good pitch recognition, bats of ball skills. He was showing power earlier this spring and that kind of tapered off. And I think that's part of the reason why he's trending down a little bit, um, that, and just, he doesn't have very loud secondary tools. He's probably going to be a, a third baseman or a second baseman and not a shortstop. So, um, there's maybe some upside questions with him, but I really believe in the bat. And if I was looking at a player outside of the top 30 range right now, who I just had a lot of confidence in to be a big leaguer someday, I think Doty would be one of the first players that I pointed to just because my personal confidence in his hitting ability is so high. I think I'm probably higher than the industry on him just based on where we've moved him around based on feedback. Um, but that would be a name that's further down that I really like. One, one name who is rising, we might have to push up higher because of his performance in, in super regionals and regionals is Oklahoma shortstop Peyton Graham. He's a guy who's coming off a 20 home run, 30 plus stolen base season. And, and for fantasy, maybe you guys are like really excited about that combination of, uh, of performance. He's, he's really lean. Um, you could project a lot more strength for him in the future. So even if you think um, those home runs are just a product of, of, of a college environment, he, he should add a lot more strength in the future. Um, and he's probably going to stick on the left side of the infield somewhere. So he's just been a really good hitter who's performing uh, at the right time and has been on a bit of a home run binge lately. Well, I feel whenever there's, whenever anyone tells me about a college shortstop with like that many stolen bases and that much power, I just assume we're talking about a below average hit tool. Yeah. I I think the hit tool is actually pretty good. I, I think the speed is maybe not as crazy as you would think based on that stolen base total. I think he's just a really smart base runner. So at the next level, maybe we're not talking about stolen bases in, in that sort of volume. Um, and certainly uh, the, the running game is not incentivized at, at the pro level that it might be in, in colleges. Um, so I think you're looking at a player who's got average to above average tools across the board. I mean, you, you might be able to have some skepticism with the swing because he's a longer levered guy. But I mean, there's, there's nothing that he's done in college that would make me look at him and say, oh, a below average hitter or really significant strikeout questions. I think it's pretty solid average across the board. Yeah. That's really interesting that he's, he's still, and you, do you think that 171 pounds you guys have, like, is that like kind of in the ballpark right now? Uh, I mean, it, it might be, if you look at how he looks on the field, he is super lean. I can check right now just to make sure that we're not outdated on that listing, but he's been a guy who who's been, I mean, he's like a bean pole and he has been the entire time he's been in college. So I wonder if he's like one of those players, like a Braden Shoemake, who just struggles to add weight. Yeah. Uh, or if in pro ball with um, with what they do with weight training and with nutrition, if he's able to. And again, maybe in pro ball, it goes the opposite way where you're playing so much more often that it's just hard to keep that weight on. And we've seen that happen, too. Mm. Um, but he is listed at six foot four when it's one seventy one. And if you look at him, I, I don't think that's too far off. So, yeah, that's a, it's a fascinating uh, player type coming from college with uh that production at that that size um huh. all right well uh let's let's move on to the the pitchers uh even though i'm not as excited to talk about this part of it but yeah uh, a little depressing now finish on a sour note <laughs> yeah um the people that wanted to listen to the first 45 minutes got what they came for but uh baseball america has four pitchers in the top 20 zero in the top 11 I got to assume that's that's a first um, in in recent years, and then and then there's ten pitchers in the twenty one to thirty five range, so they are kind of bunched up uh, towards the back of the the first round. Um, like, how does this how does this class stack up uh, in terms of other bad uh, pitching classes? Is it just 
is it just kind of missing those top two to three guys and then the rest is kind of like a normal class like how would you how do you characterize this class for pitchers yeah i would say that it, it stacks up very well when you're comparing it with the worst call worst pitching classes of recent years i mean this class has a chance to be one of the worst pitching classes we've seen ever um but when we say that we're definitely talking about we're weighting the top end pitchers more than the depth of the class. I do think the depth of the class is solid. It's probably comparable to most years um, on the college and the high school side. I think what really makes this class disappointing on the pitching front are the top end college arms who have dealt with injuries, um, who have dealt with issues um, like Carson Wisenhunt, who didn't pitch at all for East Carolina after being ruled ineligible by the NCAA after a positive drug test. He's now pitching in the Cape Cod League. Um, Kamar Rocker is another one who's been a wild card, who was obviously draft eligible last year, uh, didn't sign with the Mets, and is now um, pitching in the Frontier League. Uh, and he has looked really good. But there are a lot of players like a Landon Sims at Mississippi State, uh, who was electric early and then had Tommy John surgery. Um, players like Blade Tidwell with Tennessee, who dealt with shoulder soreness early in the year and so didn't pitch a full season. Peyton Paulette, uh, another guy who didn't pitch at all this year because of Tommy John surgery. Connor Prelep, another guy who didn't pitch at all because of Tommy John surgery. Um, and then even a guy like Reggie Crawford, who last summer was throwing in the upper 90s uh, with a hammer breaking ball from the left side. Um, and he got hurt and didn't pitch at all this spring. So there are just a lot of names who fit on talent if they're healthy as first-round pitchers who have just not pitched at all. So how teams assess those injuries and how much um, how risk averse they are for that profile, because all these teams want to be drafting college pitchers in the first round. That's a demographic that teams love. Right. Uh, and if you're in the top 15 or so, there are just none of those players to be found. Even on the high school side, Dylan Lesko is pitching himself into like the clear best pitcher in the class conversation, top five pick territory. He had Tommy John surgery. So it really feels like the attrition and the injuries to pitchers this year have been heavily loaded towards the top end elite arms, even guys further down like a Hunter Barco at Florida, who's like a low slot lefty um, with maybe less upside, but that classic kind of back of the rotation college pitchability guy, he had Tommy John surgery. So it's just, it's been hammered by injuries. We're probably going to set some records this year in, in terms of how many hitters go before the first pitcher comes off the board. Uh, I think we only have to get to seven for a record to be set. Um, and we could easily have a top 10 that is straight hitters this year. Uh, and so because of that, I think this class will be viewed as one of the worst pitching classes ever, even though you could have some sneaky pickups in the second, third, fourth rounds, like a typical year, because I do think the high school pitching depth is quite good. Um, and there are a lot of college pitchers further down the board who obviously have their their question marks and their concerns because they're further down, but have some potential as well. So that's kind of how I'd categorize it. So just kind of a quick uh, tangent on that, as you were listing all those injured pitchers, uh, I mean, pitcher injuries are nothing new, uh, but I talked to Stefania Bell about this, uh, who's the, the ESPN injury expert, and like she was talking about how um, sort of with all of this sort of emphasis on spin rate, um, I mean, velocity, obviously, but um, kind of getting that that perfect spin rate and stuff like that. Um, is just it's gonna lead to more injuries than ever before because guys are not just throwing the ball the the natural way that they're used to throwing it necessarily because they're trying to sort of unlock these these next levels in terms of their their RPM and stuff like that. Is that any kind of thing that you've you've heard teams talking about in terms of just pitcher injuries being up is this just kind of the way it is and everyone's just okay with that like have you heard anything uh, along those lines i haven't heard too many people talk about that specifically but i really like that theory i mean i think it makes a lot of sense intuitively i think pinch, pitcher injuries are really tough because i mean people have been saying for years if you, if you try and throw harder you're going to get hurt if you throw too many breaking balls you're going to get hurt i think pitchers really just have a tendency to get hurt in general even if they're not throwing that hard i i don't know what the answer is i don't think anyone really knows with any confidence but I certainly wonder about the amount of breaking balls that are thrown in college. It's a, it's a really high rate for, especially for these guys who throw really good breaking balls. Uh, you can just overwhelm opposing lineups with mid nineties velocity and uh, a plus or better breaking ball. So why would you ever not throw those pitches? I wonder how much strain that puts, puts on arms. And, and all of this is just me speculating and wondering, um, cause I truly don't know, but certainly we've evolved towards more of a power oriented game than a game that, 
um, celebrates or rewards or incentivizes durability and stamina. It's, it's go out there, throw your best stuff, miss a bat on every pitch. So, I mean, it, it makes sense to me that that's led to more injuries, although I don't know that there's any real studies to back that up and prove it. Um, but certainly something that's interesting to think about. Someone smarter than me has to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some, yeah, someone smarter than, than both of us and probably, uh, someone working for a team wouldn't even be able to figure that out. Um, so with the, back to the picture, the, the class, uh, it, it seems like there's not a ton of consensus in terms of like, if you were just kind of predicting these are going to be the first three pitchers off the board, I think a lot of years you could go three for three or two for three on that prediction. Um, but do you, do you get the sense that there's just not a ton of consensus this year? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right about that. I would, I would feel very, um, I, I would not feel very confident at all trying to pick the first three pitches off the board. I think one of the first three pitches off the board will be Brock Porter. Um, he's the top guy on our list right now because he's healthy and has really exciting upside and stuff. Uh, and it sounds like he's got a chance to go really good. But after that, Dylan Lesko's injury makes him a bit of a wild card. Kamar Rocker might be the best college equivalent pitcher in terms of stuff, physicality, performance, track record as a starter, but his medical situation makes him still a bit of a wild card. I mean, even if the scouts are saying like, yeah, this guy, like top 10 talent, he fits there. I mean, at the end of the day, that could be just a medical decision for teams on Rocker. And then once you get into the other healthy college pitchers, like a Gabriel Hughes with Gonzaga or like a Cooper Jerpy with Oregon State, guys who have really performed at a high level, I think they're talents who in an average year or a typical year, you'd be talking about as a comp round pick or early second round pick maybe. And now if you're sitting in a spot where you have to take that guy in the first round, just because you need that demographic or you want that demographic uh, and there's just no one else to pick from our team's going to do that. Are they going to let them fall? Are they going to push these guys higher up the board? I don't know. I think there are a lot of different strategies teams could use. They could just ignore pitchers altogether and take these bats. Um, They could be more aggressive in the high school demographic that, that typically teams don't love taking in the first round. I think we'll see a lot of different scenarios. And, and certainly we haven't talked about the possibility of taking these guys on just bigger haircuts than you would typically see. Maybe I think that could be a possibility as well. Teams have the ability to get creative and flexible with their money. Um, and maybe this is a draft class where it makes sense to do that. Um, but yeah, I would not want to be betting on the first three pitchers off the board because it could be a number of different names. Okay, here's a impossible question for you. Uh, who do you think will be the best pitcher from this class when we look back on this draft? For me, it's Dylan Lesko. Um, I, I think the the success rate of Tommy John surgeries is just so good now that, that we all just assume everyone is going to come back. That obviously doesn't always happen. But if he does come back and, and has the same stuff pre-injury, he's just so explosive. Um, I think it's at least three pluses across the board, and he might have plus control too. I mean, he's probably the best high school pitcher that I've seen in my time doing this at Baseball America. I think Mackenzie Gore would be the one other one that jumps out. I didn't see Hunter Green in person um, that year, but I did see Mackenzie Gore. And I think Dylan Lesko just has uh, better power at the same age with the same sort of really good feel with, with also a less uh, intensive delivery. Uh, Dylan Lesko is also a fantastic athlete, um, but it's it's a double plus fastball. Uh, it's a double plus changeup, one of the best changeups I've ever seen. Uh, and he uses that pitch like a wipeout breaking ball from another pitcher now. And he's got a super high spin rate breaking ball that I think it gets critiqued a little bit and nitpicked because everything else that he does is so good. But there's nothing about that pitch that I see that that would lead me to believe it's anything other than a plus breaking ball, especially when he gets into a pro system uh, and, and all of that pure stuff with like a buttery smooth delivery, great repeatability, good body control, fast arm. Uh, and his fastball command is exceptional. So it's really checking all of the boxes for what I would want to see from an elite high school pitching prospect or just a pitching prospect in general. So Lesko would be the guy for me um, in this class. And I think if he were healthy, it would be a pretty significant bit of separation between him and the next pitcher on the board. Okay. Are there any hitters or pitchers that you think are getting overrated? Oh, that's a tougher one. Overrated. Hitters or pitchers? Hmm. I think there are going to be some pitchers who are taken in the back of the first that probably are going to be overrated just in the sense that they're getting pushed up the board because the demographic isn't there. Not to say that like Gabriel Hughes or Cooper Jerby or any of these guys really are overrated, but I think they're just going to get drafted in position where maybe the expectations for them will be a little bit different than it would be in a typical year. Um, hitters, I've just gotten really scared of the college toolsy 
um, hitter who who has swing and miss questions. Um, I don't know if that means that, that these hitters are overrated or we're all just a little leery of that profile, but um, guys like uh, just kind of scrolling down my list, like a Jordan Beck might be a good one. He has a lot of raw power. He looks the part as like a big league slugger, really good athlete in the outfield. Um, he started off really hot and has trended down boards. And so um, again, maybe this is kind of a cop out because it's not like a guy who's at the top of the board, but I am a little concerned about the swing and miss with him. Um, other guys like, uh, like a Spencer Jones at Vanderbilt. He is really exciting tools with the swing and miss concerns me as well. Judd Fabian, same kind of deal. Uh, really exciting tools up the middle player with tons of raw power. I mean, he hit more than 20 home runs this year. Um, but the swing and miss for all those guys is really concerning for me. If, if you're swinging and missing that much in college, what does that mean about your hit tool at the next level? So I would just be a little aware of those profiles. Um, don't want to single anyone out as maybe being overrated because, yeah. because hopefully if they are being overrated, we'll adjust our rankings to account for that. But those would be some names that are just a little scarier for my taste. Well, can uh, kind of a follow up there. Can you kind of give me a, cause obviously there's a huge gap between college pitching and and pro pitching mm-hmm. uh like what is kind of a a danger line for you when it comes to like a strikeout rate for a college hitter like because i obviously in the majors we've seen guys have a ton of success even with like a 30 percent strikeout rate but mm-hmm. typically you in the minors if you see a 30 percent strikeout rate from a age appropriate guy that's yeah that's kind of a red flag but what is it what is that line like in, in college these days i think it's somewhere between like 20 percent and 25 percent um probably depending on who you talk to it might come earlier it might come a little bit later but once you're getting much beyond 20 percent strikeout rate you start to kind of raise your eyebrows and wonder um especially if you're not playing in and maybe the best conference if you're not playing in an sec or an acc where the pitching isn't as good uh you would wonder why you're striking out that much if you're at 30% in college, it's certainly a, a red flag. That That's like, whoa, territory. Um, and there are some players who have who've had those strikeout rates. Um, I think I remember like Casey Martin. Um, that would be a good one. He would be a prime example. I can pull up his now and just see like what his strikeout rate was. But with Casey Martin, that's the exact sort of profile that's really concerning. Super toolsy, um, really athletic shortstop, but he just always struck out a ton. Um, he struck out in college... 165 times in 684 plate appearances. Um, I don't know what the math is on that, but it was it was certainly concerning. Um, and he would be one. He would be like a prominent one, a good example to bring up from recent years. And I don't know how he has performed in the minors. It looks like he's hitting under 200 yeah. um, for two years now. So there you go. That That's why it's a concern. <laughs> Uh, okay, Carlos, before we let you go, is there any other, uh, you know, sleepers, like just person, personal favorites who are a little deeper down the board that you wanted to, to mention uh, before I let you go? Yeah, there's there's certainly some players that I like further down the board. Um, let's go with... Um, hmm. A lot of pitchers that I always like. I will say Malcolm Moore is a name that we haven't talked about. Who's a little further down the board, not not crazy down the board, but he's he's just a really good hitter, Northern California catching prospect, um, out of high school. He reminds me they're very different athletes, and one's a left-handed hitter and one's a right-handed hitter. But his his just hitting ability and how people talk about him as an offensive player reminds me of how scouts talked about Kevin Prada out of high school. Um, they're both California kids, but again, they're they're very different in terms of how they do it and the sort of athletes. I think Malcolm Moore is a definite move off of catcher at the next level. Um, but he's got a chance to be plus hit and plus power. And if we're talking about that guy further down the board, if those are accurate, uh, that that's a really exciting player. I know Kyle Glazer at baseball America is a big fan of him. Um, and I think I've increasingly become a bigger fan of him as we've progressed. Um, maybe one other guy is Mikey Romero, another California product shortstop out of orange Lutheran high school in California, which is a powerhouse there. I love his hands. I think he's got a chance to be a really good hitter. The secondary tools are more of a question. He's a smaller guy, 5'11, 170. Um, I think he, his defensive instincts are good. He should play a middle infield position somewhere, might be second base instead of shortstop. But if he was a guy who, who doesn't sign this year for whatever reason and gets to Louisiana state, I feel like he's a guy who in a few years uh, could be a really, really impressive hitter. Awesome, man. Uh, where can, uh, I mean, obviously everyone that's listening to this should, should be subscribed to baseball America. I mean, it's absolutely, uh, essential, 
uh, all year round, um, but especially during draft time. Um, but can you maybe let people know where they can follow you and, and what to be on the lookout for at, at BA in the, the coming weeks? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Carlos A. Colazzo and all of my work, like you said, is at Baseball America. Uh, so for those who subscribe and support us, we really do appreciate that. We, we couldn't do what we do without you guys. So thank you um, for that support. And then in terms of what you can expect moving forward, we've got the BA 500 coming out shortly. We'll expand from 300 to 500. We'll be doing updated reports for everyone in the class, um, rolling out BA grades and tool grades for the top 200 players. Um, we'll start rolling out more frequent mock drafts as we get closer. And as that buzz, um, starts coming around and then we're also releasing a draft preview issue of the magazine. I think it's going to be the biggest magazine we've ever done in the history of BA. So if you guys are into the print product, you can check out that as well. All of that content will be online. If you are uh, a millennial or a zoomer and you don't really do, uh, reading books physically anymore, but, um, yeah, just check out baseball America for anything that we have and, and you should be able to see it all. Great. Thanks so much, man. This was a ton of fun, very informative, and uh, good luck with that 500. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it.